1: Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. In 1966, a lot of things happened. The Beatles stopped touring, for one. The Vietnam War was gaining a tremendous amount of steam, as was the protest against it. And an Indian man, a little over 70 years old, who came to the country just a year before, established his work, officially. He called it the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Most people knew the adherents as simply the Hare Krishnas. Now, if you have any experience in any of the large cities, you may have come across a temple. You may have come across people chanting in the streets back in the day. You may have encountered them... At airports, Uh, you may have encountered them on college campuses. You may have encountered them in greater halls of learning. They were ubiquitous in certain areas of the country. A lot of people question just exactly why do they have to dress so differently, and what sort of religion is it? Are they a cult? Well, we're going to get to a number of those subjects, but most important right now, The Hare Krishna movement is celebrating 50 years in the West here in 2016, and they have grown to become a major force in religion, not only here in the United States, but also across the globe, in Europe, in Africa, in South America. The founder, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, affectionately known as Prabhupada, only worked at at this mission for 11 years. He came in in 1966, and he passed away in 1977. This is an amazing feat for any one individual. Certainly, he didn't do it all by himself, but uh, he was the spearheader. Today, we're going to talk to someone about the Hare Krishna movement and where it's been, what it's uh, doing today, and what uh, might be seen in the future. This is Anutama Dasa, who is with us. Anutama is the Minister of Communications and the Governing Body Chairman of ISKCON and uh, has been in the movement since practically the very beginning. And we welcome to Common Threads Anutama Dasa. Hello, Anutama.
2: Thank you, Fred. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Hare Krishna.
1: Hare Krishna. So this is an exciting year for you. Tell me personally, when did you start? I know it wasn't, you didn't you don't go back 50 years, but you go back fairly close to 50.
2: Yes, I first uh, became involved with the Krishna movement seriously in 1975. So, uh, as you mentioned, Prabhupada came to the West in 1965. He started ISKCON, or the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, in New York City in 1966. So, I got involved about nine years later. And at that point in time, I I felt I was pretty junior to these people who have been uh, doing the bhakti yoga practice for 10 years, but in in hindsight, as you said, I've been there since fairly early on, 1975.
1: And you were initiated by Prabhupada?
2: I was, I was. I I, uh, was raised in Michigan and traveled around the country a bit, settled down in Colorado, and uh, kind of tried out the ashram of the temple there in, in Denver, in 1975, and then decided this was an important calling for me. Went to India in the spring of 1966, and then I took what, what we'd say initiation, or took formal vows, in, in, the, in the Bhakti or the Krishna tradition in the spring of 1976.
1: And I remember in a, a previous personal conversation that you and I had that you do have some Michigan roots, and, and where are those roots?
2: I was born in uh, Detroit and raised in Southfield. My parents moved to Southfield when I was about seven years old. And I was there all the way through high school, went to Southfield Lathrop High School, which I heard recently I think is closing or turning into a charter school or something like that, sadly. It was a great school. And then I, uh, I went to University of Michigan State for a couple of years, and I transferred to the University of Michigan, decided that uh, I had kind of a, a deeper calling and, and, and took off out west to see what else I could learn. And so that was my... That was the end of my Michigan roots, although I've had family back there for many, many years.
1: And it's interesting because Detroit had uh, a significant uh, uh, representation of ISKCON, but you didn't connect with it here in Michigan, correct?
2: Well, the very first time I saw Christian devotees, I was in high school. And it's kind of a funny story. I had no interest whatsoever in religion but as a senior in high school, we, we had the choice to take some different electives, and I was with a group of people who became very good friends of mine in the first semester of my senior year. And then for the second semester, the bulk of them went to take a religions class, and I think I was signed up for economics or something else. And I went to two days of the economics class and decided, hey, my friends are over there. So I went to the religion class, and it, it was kind of in a very powerful experience i i'd never studied anything about hinduism or buddhism or judaism or even my own kind of traditional christianity Though my my family wasn't very religious and it just struck me as some of the more profound things i'd ever studied and i had a great time a lot of fun and that was really my first exposure to the christian tradition then later when i went to michigan state i used to see christian devotees sometimes doing their chanting and distributing literature when i was a student and i'd stop and talk with them and um Later moved to Ann Arbor and started going to, to the some of their, they had a little like an outreach uh, student center there, and I'd go occasionally for the uh, free vegetarian feast that uh, Steve Jobs talks about he went to when he was a college student. And uh, later on decided uh, I'd take up the path.
1: But it wasn't here in Michigan. You, you didn't make that no, decision until no. Colorado, right?
2: No, yes, yes. It's funny, though. I have some friends that uh, around the same period of time, late 60s, 70s, decided that they really had a kind of a spiritual urge and they took off to Nepal or India or whatever. I wasn't quite as brave an adventurous soul, but I I did meet a young woman on the Arboretum, I think, or the Diag, they call it at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor who told me if you're really serious about spiritual life you should go to Boulder Colorado so I think that's as much as i could uh I had the strength <laughs> for so kind of she, I just met this woman and you know we just talked for a few hours and on uh, the common areas of the university but she was a serious spiritual seeker and it was the time of my life I was kind of looking to see what's the next step. And, and on the basis of, of that conversation in Ann Arbor, I went to Colorado. So I, I, I owe Michigan a lot, both in terms of my upbringing and my and my and the spiritual seeds were planted for me there.
1: Sure. And, and I hear in the 1970s that uh, the toilets were much better in Boulder than they were in India. That's just what I hear. I don't know.
2: You know, I, I can't <laughs> guarantee that, but Fred, you're probably right.
1: <laughs> so uh, what was it about... ISKCON, you were you were clearly up at, at some point. You turned from someone who was pretty much. Would you describe yourself as a materialist and an agnostic? Uh, did, any label feel comfortable? Yeah,
2: very secular. I don't know if I was very materialistic, but very secular and agnostic for sure, and and maybe atheist. I, I'd gone to a, I went to a summer camp when I was a child for almost twelve summers in a row, and it was a a Christian church camp, and I liked the camp um I, you know in hindsight i i I feel definitely it was very helpful for me and to learn to, you know kind of reinforcing moral codes and and love the outdoors and the whole experience it was a great great experience, and at the same time i I kind of felt the religiosity of it that was presented for me at least was 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 pretty superficial not that Christianity is certainly in the teachings of Christ certainly are not. But just that experience kind
1: of
2: further turned me away from religion. So I was kind of feeling as a young person in the early 70s, hey, the world has got so many challenges. And, you know, Karl Marx had said that religion is the opiate of the people, and I feel there's some truth to that. Oftentimes people are told, well, just believe in an afterlife or believe in God or, you know, be glad that God's given you so much and don't worry so much about what other people have. I mean, that, that, that's not the core of the religious teaching, but sometimes it's interpreted that way. And I kind of felt that was, to a certain extent, that's what was presented to me, and that kind of made me feel like, I think I need to look for some, some deeper answers. I want to make the world a better place, and this doesn't seem to be doing that. So that was kind of a turnoff for me, and I, I kept those views pretty much for the first few years in college.
1: What was it about uh, Prabhupada? Again, his official name was uh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami. Uh, the devotees tend to call him Prabhupada, Which what is is that like revered master or something like yeah,
2: that? Yes, it it means one at whose feet other teachers sit. So it, it it's kind of an honorific term that means you know a great teacher, someone who's who's carrying the message, and we would say carrying the message as a, as a servant of God. We're, we're we're theists, so there are some traditions that say, you know, we would say over-inflate the position of the teacher, the guru. But our understanding is, and we'll talk about this more perhaps, as, as Vaishnavas in our tradition teaches, that um, we're all servants of God. So Prabhupada was, was one who was particularly effective, empowered, you might say, uh, to help others reconnect with an understanding that, that we're all servants of God and thus we're servants of each other. So that way it's, it's, a, it's a term for a great teacher, one who helps us reconnect with our, with our relationship with God.
1: So clearly, you you had a very wide spiritual menu before you in in the early to mid nineteen seventies. You could go in any direction in this great country of ours, where it's uh, it's a spiritual smorgasbord. What about uh, Prabhupada's work brought you in?
2: Well, let me mention first because I think what you're saying about spiritual smorgasbord is so true. And I, for me, I think it's possibly the most important thing about being an American and one of the greatest things that our country provides us. And it is our very First Amendment. There's many amendments, but it's the first one. I think it's a preeminent one that gives us that freedom to explore different religious faiths and, and to practice and to teach and to share with others. And I, I think that's an essential American value that, unfortunately, is, it's under attack. And a lot. Of, it's not just an American value. It's a human value that's under attack in a lot of parts of the world, so it was very fortunate. And I definitely experimented with a lot of things. I remember for a while, um, you know, I kind of had a mix of, 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 of different worlds. I, I was working as a bartender, and I would get off work at 2 o'clock and kind of hang around with the rest of the staff members and party till about 3, and then I'd go to sleep, and I'd get up about 10, and I would read the Bhagavad Gita, the principal Hindu scripture. I would read a book that was quite popular in those days called Be Here Now. I would read a little bit of the Bible, And then I'd go walk around Ann Arbor, I'd hang out with what were called Jesus freaks in those days, young people that were kind of trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as a wandering mendicant or renunciate, so to speak. And then I went to Buddhist retreats and I was going to a Methodist church on Sundays and um, really trying to... I I had a, a strong sense that there definitely is a calling for every human being. And there's different paths that are offered, different teachings, and they all have some deep value. Some may go more deeper than others, but definitely tremendous value in all those different uh, authentic practices. So, I was kind of experimenting a lot, and, and then one of the things I was doing was I started visiting the Krishna temple. I started chanting the mantras, the prayers that the Krishna devotees chant, which in part I felt validated from my exposure to Orthodox Christianity, which talked about chanting on beads and prayer and reciting and repeating God's name. So to me, all the pieces kind of started to fit together and then i left michigan and traveled around for about two or three months kind of looking to see what to do ended up in boulder colorado and there was an ashram there a krishna ashram so i started spending time with the people from the from the krishna ashram actually was in denver colorado at the time And, and again kind of doing different things and then decided well I think I need to really give this a try. So I moved in the Christian Temple. I had not met Prabhupada at that time. Had been associated with a lot of his uh, his disciples and member of his of his order, and uh, went and spent some time in the ashram. and, and It all made sense. And I, one thing I can share that the night I did so, I I really wasn't convinced this was what I should do, or that this is really the best path for me or anybody but i remember praying before i went to sleep that night dear krishna dear jesus dear moses dear allah dear Mohammed, whoever you are wherever you may be i don't really know for sure who you are but i've seen and experienced enough to know that definitely there's a purpose in this life beyond just the struggle for existence that we're meant to try to find god and please consider whatever little bit i'm doing here by trying this ashram situation giving my heart to it please consider that genuine if you don't want me to be here please sell me somewhere else to go but i made a vow i'm not going to leave unless i find something better for my spiritual practice i'm not going to go back to do all the different things i'd found were not very fulfilling in life i just want to go forward but if um uh, you know if i find something more true i'm going to do that and i'm going to leave in a minute and otherwise i'm going to stay so you know for me that was 40 years ago and i'm i'm still here
1: when you well, let me uh, before I ask my next question, just remind people that you're listening to WGVU's Common Threads here on WGVU FM 88.5. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Anutama Dasa. He's the Minister of Communications and Governing Body Chairman of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, and this is their 50th year in. Uh, in the United States, and well, actually, in in the entire world, that this particular expression of Vaishnavism. Uh, so, when you were there in the in the early days, uh, how did your family react to you taking such a step?
2: That's a very good question, interesting one too. I think my parents were quite secular. In fact, not just my parents, my whole family. I had, I had a couple of aunts and uncles that were religious, but generally, my family was very secular and you might say in their case materialistic and they my my parents came out of the depression era when there were so many things that they had to do without they worked very very hard they got through world war two they wanted to provide wonderful thing for their kids and we know what happened in the fifties and the blossoming of industrialization as far as you know roads and suburbs and you know all the wonderful things that the people were able to provide for their families and not unlike a lot of young people in that era i kind of grew up benefiting from all of their sacrifices but also deeply feeling the sense of uh, of something was missing in my life. So when I did pursue a spiritual path in life, my parents at first didn't understand it at all. Uh, My father is kind of humorous to look back at it now. Um, Within a week of my making this commitment to spend some time in the Christian temple, he sent me a copy of Time magazine, which to him was kind of like scripture. And he had scribbled across the front of it, Come back to the real world. And he sent me then an envelope without any letter or anything else and just sent it to my attention, the temple address. That was the first thing I heard from my father. And um, so they clearly didn't appreciate what I was doing. In fact, about a year or two before he came and visited me when I was still living in an Arbor, and I remember a very funny conversation over lunch. He told me I was a young man, 21 at the time or something. He said, your mother tells me you're becoming interested in religion. And I thought, wow, here's one of those father-son talks that we've never had. And I said, yes. And, and, and I said, why do you ask? And he said, because I just want to let you know, I don't think you're cut out for it. You know, going to hospitals and visiting old ladies and doing funerals, it's not your thing. <laughs> and, you know, I really appreciated him coming to have that conversation with me, but... Um, you know, perhaps in his mind I was just being kind of idealist, but I'm thinking, like, that's not what Buddha was talking about when he told people to, you know, seek the truth, and that's not what Jesus was talking about, it's not what Krishna was talking about, the Bhagavad Gita, they're talking about trying to understand, you know, who I am, and what's the purpose of this world, and is there life after death, and why is there suffering, you know, those, those are the things I'm trying to figure out, and I really wasn't planning on a, a life visiting people in the hospital. Those those are certainly good callings, but that wasn't my idea of religion. Now later, you know, having said that, it's interesting. A few years later, my parents would would I was still in Denver. They would drive out. My parents retired. They come out every year. We we spent about a week together, and sometimes I'd come home for the, for the for the for the for the holiday season, Christmas, New Year's, and all that. And later on, my parents both told me with some sense of pride, they said, "Of all our children, you're the happiest." and that meant a lot for me cause, to me because i knew that's what they wanted more than anything else and uh my, my other siblings were quite successful but, but but they shared with me they thought that they they really felt that i was the happiest and what really made a big difference i lived as a as a as a monk in a sense uh, for for about 10 years in in the in the Denver Krishna Ashram and later married which you're allowed to do in our tradition and uh i had a family and now I have grandchildren, but um, my, my when I got married, I, I, think, I think my parents realized that my they loved my wife more than me, and that kind of made them even more favorable to the Christian <laughs> tradition, that she was such a wonderful person. Uh,
1: back then, especially, I, I don't hear this much today, but back then, uh, the reputation of that ISKCON had um, in, in certain circles was that it was a cult. Now, it, cult. the word cult has a neutral connotation, and it has a pejorative connotation. So perhaps we could agree that it was a cult in that it was a small band of people, uh, a small group, in the same way that Christianity was a cult in the first century, and that uh, Buddhism was a cult. But when people referred to ISKCON as a cult in 1967 or 68, they weren't talking about that. They were talking about something a, a little, a little nefarious, if you will. Could you could you speak to that? And if ISKCON wasn't a cult, why wasn't it a cult?
2: Certainly, there was that perception among a, a fair number of people. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it being just that this was such a, a stridently different cultural expression of religion. I mean, outside of maybe the Salvation Army, who occasionally go out in public and 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 do their their singing and their playing of instruments and things like that, and I think even that had toned down quite a bit from say the '40s and '50s. More or less, these days you see them kind of identify with social welfare work and not so much their their musical ministry. But that in itself was, was a bit of a shock to people and and. Seeing young Western people, men monastics with shaved heads and and wearing you know the orange or saffron colored robes, traditional of of Indian priests, and women wearing the long saris, you know this was an area that uh, people were just uh, still trying to get used to the Beatles haircut, and at the same time here these people show up with very very different cultural norms. So that that kind of was a bit of a shock to people. And and the things that we teach, I mean, Prabhupada came. It's it's quite interesting. He came to America in 1965, which was the the beginning of the era of of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And it's amazing he had any success at all because his basic teaching was 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 no sex outside of marriage, no drugs whatsoever. Instead of letting your hair down, shave your head off, shave your hair off. So you know, it, it, it was it, it was such a kind of a contrast to to kind of the the type of you uh, know was, what was deemed as normal, quote-unquote, normal American society. That was a part of it. A second thing I think that generally Americans just, in that area in particular, that there weren't a lot of Indian-Americans here. I mean, our tradition comes from India. Goes, the worship of Krishna goes back 5,000 years. You know, you mentioned our organization has been existent for 50 years, but the tradition itself has been around for thousands of years. There's n- hundreds of thousands probably of temples of Krishna in India. But it was a new thing. Most Americans, if you talked about religious diversity, I meant Catholic, Jewish, and Protestant—that's about as diverse as people got. Remember, my parents had a, 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 two of their friends; was a, a Jewish man married a Catholic woman. It was practically a scandal in their generation. It was so people's awareness of Eastern traditions and definitely the Christian tradition was, was not there. So something that seemed different was a little uh, maybe scary and very definite, questionable and all that. Third factor that contributed to that was. Uh, when Prabhupada came, most of his followers in those early years were were young American converts—white, black, Latino men and women—who, you know, like myself, uh, many, not all, kind of said, "Okay, well, the world as we're finding it really doesn't hold out much promise, so we're going to leave our jobs or, oftentimes, leave leave the university and 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 move into an ashram and a monastery." And and as you saw with my parents, it was a bit of a shock. Once they understood the authenticity of the tradition, the sincerity of these people, the ethical values they follow, then they come around and say, "Hey, it's a pretty good thing." Um, But a lot of shock to the the difference, and you know, particularly in this context of of, of young people. I mean, we made a lot of mistakes. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I'm the communication director. I went to Larry King a few years ago and apologized on a global television show about the excesses of our people in those in those days, distributing books in public and. We think distributing spiritual literature to people is a really good thing. But, you know, when you're 20 years old and you just join some new religious movement and and you're kind of coming to grips with your own conviction and maybe trying to understand why other people do what they do, it's a little easier to get maybe a little rough around the edges, a little proud, um, not as respectful of other people as you should be. And I think there's a Christian expression, Lord, save me from the convert.
0: Yes. so we definitely kind of were
2: part of the problem ourselves in terms of reputation and I think we've learned a lot from that I, you know we went through a period there was you know, quite a few complaints about us and things and I don't hear hardly anything at all these days but um, you know we still kind of were paying the karma for that, our <laughs> reputation is still not as good as it should be and part of you know, it is our own fault so I think there's multiple reasons for that whole perception but, but, but scholars today and way back then would say hey this is an authentic religious tradition exactly um, yeah, I mean there's there's there, there's there's a there's a reference. There's one famous book, um, a scholar named um, A. L. Basham. He's passed away now. He wrote a book called The Glory That Was India, and he wrote his in his book that the Christian movement was the first time in history since the Roman Empire that followers of 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 Western civilization were publicly practicing an Eastern tradition on the streets of modern cities. So. You know, scholars were thinking, wow, this is an amazing phenomenon that this tradition is being brought around the world. But for people that are familiar with it, like, whoa, that's pretty strange, There, maybe that's some kind of cult or something. But people that know say, no, it's an ancient tradition. And to see how diverse America is, and now we've got Christian devotees.
1: Uh, 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 Anatoma Dasa, uh, we are coming down to the wire, uh, but this is your 50th year, as we've been talking about. You've got something special going on, I believe, in Washington, uh coming up very shortly.
2: There there's a few things. We we've been having celebrations all year long all around the world. The the Prime Minister of uh, the UK just came and inaugurated a new temple just a few weeks ago outside of London and they had a big event in Calcutta. They filled a stadium twice with I think the total of about thirty five thousand people. Big celebration there. But one of the things I think you're specifically for to inter- here in, in Washington D. C. Ralph is something called the Chant for Change. And we invite everyone to come and participate with this. ISCON is as part of our fiftieth anniversary, we're we're co-sponsors of this event and you can look it up online chant for change the number 4 and they're bringing um people for musicians and uh devotional uh, groups and and choirs things like that uh from many different religious traditions um uh Jayu Tal, um, MC Yogi uh as Skin of Spirit Sweet hunting the Rock which is well known I think kind of a contemporary Christian group here, um, um, the man who's called the Kirtan Rabbi, and the event is on the 8th of October. It's a Saturday, and the location itself is special. It's uh, right in front of the Lincoln Memorial, right where um, Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous uh, I Have a Dream speech. Uh, 8th of October 2016 begins at 1 o'clock and goes until 10. It's free. And everyone's invited to come in the days to kind of raise our voices and in, in, in prayer and in meditation and calling out to the divine, to our country. It's a lot of turmoil right now. It's a month before the elections, and let's get together and, and, and share some common humanity in our different traditions and, and our, our, our desire for peace and, and, and harmony here in our country
1: and around the world. Anuta Madasa, thank you so very much for joining us. and. Uh, This is a great conversation. I've got more questions, so I'm hoping you'll join us next week, and we'll, uh, we'll move on.
2: I'd be happy to. Thank you, Fred. Thanks for having me. Hare Krishna.
1: You're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Anutama Dasa, the Minister of Communications and Governing Body Chairman of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, was our guest, as he will be next week. Please join us if you can.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening, and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an Interfaith Dialogue.
1: I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Anutama Dasa. He's the Minister of Communications and the Governing Body Chairman of the International Society of Krishna Consciousness. And ISKCON is celebrating 50 years in existence. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about a particular organization that represents a part of a spiritual movement that's over 5,000 years old. Many things have happened in these past 50 years, and Anuta Madasa was there from almost the beginning, and we had a wonderful time last week uh, reflecting on those, and we're just going to continue our conversation. So Anup- Anuta Madasa, welcome back to Common Threads.
2: Thank you, Fred. I'm very happy to be here again.
1: So last week we talked a little bit about your personal history, with ISKCON uh, joining about, uh, what is it, 10 years, you said, last week, 10 years into the movement here in the United States?
2: Yes, about 10 years. It, it was brought from India in 1965, and the organization was officially started in 1966, and then I got involved, in actually, you know, officially in 1975, so about 10 years later.
1: We talked last week about some of the issues that you faced, uh, for instance, some of the things that people in the organization did that uh, didn't, didn't, uh, weren't the best for public relations purposes, let's put it that way, and some other things that uh, might have frustrated some people, both inside and outside the movement. But one thing that I've noticed that Prabhupada himself, the, the founding guru, uh, A.C. Uh, Bhaktivedanta Swami, whom we talked about last week, uh, you you uh, affectionately referred to him as Prabhupada. Um, he received very little personal criticism. Would you say that that was true, that he didn't fall into the same trap as so many uh, people from India who came here to start movements or to uh, import movements uh, here in the West? In uh, His uh, life was free from scandal, and uh, free from, uh, for the most part, free from any reproach, unless I missed something. Am I correct there?
2: Yes, I mean, I would agree with that. I, th- I think, you know, I, I can't speak about other people that came from India or wherever to, 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 to teach different things. Um, but I think people looking at Prophet's contributions, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what he did. I mean, he was... Uh, almost 70. He turned 70 while on board a, a freighter ship. He'd been asked by his teacher years before uh, to to bring the, the the Vaishnava or the Krishna, the devotional yoga tradition, to the Western world, particularly to the Eastern, excuse me, to the English-speaking world. So at, at the age of 69, Prabhupada uh, convinced an, a, a a patron there who owned a freight line of ships to please give him free passage, and he worked for several years translating some of the ancient Sanskrit scriptures, a very notable book called the Bhagavat, or the Bhagavat Purana. He translated and got three of those uh, published at, at great personal hardship, he had no institutional support whatsoever. At that point he was living as a as a monastic, or what's called a sannyasi in the tradition, so he had no money, he had to just find a, a few donors here and there who would, who would help publish the books. And then what he had is is his three volumes of books translated he came on a- board the ship to the west. he had literally seven dollars with the rupees, which when he arrived, were useless because you couldn't change rupees into dollars in those days and he had an agreement to 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 stay with uh with uh the home of uh, of a man whose father had met Prabhupada in India, so he had a thirty day stay again, no money, no institutional support, really no context and From there he stayed, got a sense of what the American cultures about went to New York City. Um, for a period, lived on the Bowery, had no financial support whatsoever, and really, really struggled, a lot of personal sacrifice, and then started this fledgling movement in New York's Lower East Side with some young followers that were interested in yoga and meditation and anything from the East. And from there, in the the next 11 years, I mean, he, he traveled around the world. There's something like 14 world tours. He translated dozens of volumes of books. He started about 108 temples and uh, was, you know, quite renowned for his personal piety and his uh, personal level of uh, of kind of ethical behavior. Unlike, perhaps, some teachers, that kind of, the emphasis was around them, and practically everybody, a lot of people have heard of Hare Krishna. Hardly anybody's heard of Bhaktivedanta Swami or Prabhupada, because that's what he was about. He wasn't about putting himself forward. He he famously said that, uh, you know, we're all servants of God, and, if someone says that they're God, actually, they've got it backwards. They're not God, G-O-D, they're dog, T-O-G. <laughs> We're servants of God, and we should put God first. So he was very straightforward on that, and I, I think people that know about his life, uh, you know, they appreciate that.
1: What are uh, some of the central tenets that uh, uh, devotees of Iskon would focus on?
2: Well, the the basic, um, our our tradition is technically called Vaishnavism, which means it's a monotheistic devotional tradition, part of the broader family of Hindu faiths. Hinduism is very, very broad. There's many different, what are called, sampradayas or traditions within that. And the Vaishnav tradition particularly emphasizes the idea that God is the supreme, or the the divine, the divinity is ultimately a a person. God is a person, and we're persons, we're eternal persons, and we have a, a relationship with God. And then we've forgotten that, and we're all living in this material world, which is kind of a temporary place. us. Right? it's not our our natural home. And in the human form of life, we have sufficient opportunity, and particularly intelligence, to philosophically inquire about these essential questions: Who am I? Where have I come from? Uh, why do I have to die? Why do I have to grow old? Uh, why is there so much suffering in the world? Same questions that. Every religious tradition in the world grapples with, and most philosophies grapple with. And in the Vaishnava the Krishna tradition, it teaches that uh, because we've forgotten our relationship with God, that's kind of our identity. We eternally have a loving relationship with the Supreme Person who is described as Krishna. Krishna means the all-attractive person. He's the most beautiful person, the strongest person, the most knowledgeable person, etc. So while looking basically boils down to the bhakti idea, the bhakti tradition that we represent, boils down that every individual is really looking for love. And some of us we, you know, we love our families, we love our country, we love our sports team, we love a certain kind of music. And 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 our tradition, our scriptures and our teachers would say, "Well, that's that's good, but it's not sufficient. The soul, our innermost need of our heart can't be satisfied only by loving our family we need to learn to love the entire family and if we kind of learn to love god everything comes along with that and then we naturally love our family more we appreciate our country more we love our friends more because we we awaken a sense of their spiritual identity we see them as beyond just being a you know a temporary thing that's going to walk around on the earth for 50 or 100 years and then and then die so the basic philosophical point is so that we're not the body we're the soul within and that um, human life is meant to solve all the problems of life by reawakening our spiritual identity. And we can do that. There's so many great religious traditions in the world that we respect. We certainly don't say we're the only show in town or the only faith in town or the only process. And our tradition teaches at the same time this kind of a difficult age for spiritual practice compared to how we understand things were in ancient history. So it's recommended that uh, one lives a simple life and tries to learn to, whatever they do in life, whatever their occupation, that they try to spiritualize or put God in the center, and um, then it's kind of a natural awakening for us during our lives. We sometimes say simple living, high thinking.
1: And and chanting is central to your spiritual practice, right?
2: Yes, yes, and, and the idea of the chanting... It's that, again, we are spiritual beings. We've forgotten our original identity as, as eternal spirit souls connected with God. And that by chanting mantras or, or repeating the names of God, it's really a prayer, the chant is a prayer. The Hare Krishna mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hari. When we say that, we're repeating and meditating, hearing different names of God which our tradition teaches God is none different from God's name. So when we chant Jesus or Allah or Krishna or Rama, just by coming in contact with that name because God's all pure, we become purified. And sometimes uh, in our lineage it describes just like if you take some a piece of iron or iron rod, if you put it in fire, if you keep it in the fire long enough, the iron becomes just like fire. So the same way if we surround ourselves with with spiritual activities and spiritual concepts, spiritual friends, spiritual music, spiritual food, then our consciousness becomes spiritualized. And the natural result is that we become a little happier and a little less stressed out, which everybody's looking for.
1: One thing that we talked about uh, briefly, very briefly, uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday, last week, uh, is when you entered the ashram, how different things are today from then. So but what I mean by that is when you were interested, when you decided that you wanted to join ISKCON, you were encouraged to take up residence in an ashram. And from my understanding and my remembrance of those days, that is the the course that people took by and large. They joined the ashram. They lived in the the temple now you use the phrase monastic life uh, but I, I want to be clear from what i remember you had people who were truly monastics that is to say joined the swami order they were renunciants they were monks and nuns but then you also had married people who lived in these uh, large temples and
2: yes in in, in yeah. the earliest years, not so many married people. It was a lot of young men and women who were single, who were you know practicing what's technically called a brahmanchari or brahmancharini life, roughly parallels to monastic uh, life, although not reclusive in in that sense. Uh, but you know, a, a life of celibacy and focusing one's life on prayer and 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 spiritual service and things like that. Uh, very much that was kind of the demographic. Demographics of the early years, but but soon on, I would say probably early 80s, a lot of those young people decided, hey, let's get married and and, and raise a family, which is definitely part of the Krishna tradition. It's not that it's just a a, a a tradition for 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 you know renunciates or or single people or priests and monks like that. So more and more people deciding to get married, and then naturally over time, many people became involved with the with the Krishna movement, the Hare Krishna Society, and said hey, you know, I'm happy being a lawyer or a doctor or driving a truck, and I'm just. this is going to be my religion that I'm going to come to the temple once a week or once a month or once a day. So today, if you were to visit a Christian temple, say, I live in, in Washington, D.C. now, and we just had what's our major holiday of the year, which is Krishna's birthday. It's called Janmashtami just a couple weeks ago, and it's a big event. Um, you know, we've got quite a few acres of property here, and we, we host about 10,000 people. And um, those certainly are not people all living in in, in an ashram or in renunciate status of life. You know, again, they're they're working people. They're members of our congregation. Um, on an average Sunday, which is our main worship day, just because the weekend works good for everybody in America, it's not really part of the the Eastern tradition to make Sunday such a big deal. But we do because it works for everybody. We'll have probably an average about 500 people come, and that's a lot of kids and definitely a lot of families, some young people, some you know young adults, and all of that. And then, on, the, on the, like I said, the high holy days, Janmas, me and a couple others, we'll get eight or ten thousand people. But we're very much a congregational community these days. Um, very different than the early demographics, and, and that's fine. That's in, in our tradition says that there's no there's no reason one should not live a life in the world and at the same time focus their priority of spiritual spiritual practice.
1: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads here on WGVU FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Anutama Dasa. He's the Minister of Communications and the Governing Body Chairman of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, and we're talking about ISKCON's fiftieth anniversary. Uh, and uh, certainly, I'm going to guess that this new paradigm that you've been discussing about becoming more congregational. Uh, is more financially stable. Is is that a good guess?
2: It's certainly that our financial base has changed. Um, we are a congregationally supported organization, whereas in the earliest years, again, with all those young people saying, yes, I want to give my life to God, you know, I, I didn't move anything, move into the temple with anything more than a backpack and a sleeping bag <laughs> and a a few dollars, and and the financial basis was largely uh, distribution of our literatures, which we mentioned, uh, you know, last week that that uh, you know that led to some problems because there was a little too much pressure on making sure that uh, I received enough of a donation for that book to come keep the temple going, and that wasn't a, a very good plan as far as you know keeping our our good graces with the public and all of that. But soon after that, I mean, with with the growing of the congregation. Um, uh, they cover all expenses. I mean, this festival I mentioned, that on the night ten thousand people was free. We we fed, we fed free meals to ten thousand people that came to the temple that night. In fact, I'll just mention as an example. Uh, I mean, in India today, we we are the world's largest. Um, we have the world's largest network of free vegetarian food relief programs. Hare Krishna, food for life, or sometimes called Hari Krishna, just food relief. And in India alone, we, we, we're doing a program in conjunction with the Indian government, and we feed 1.2 million children every day in India. And in our 600-plus temples around the world, at least at, on Sundays, we have a big open house and we feed a you know, vegetarian meal as part of our spiritual practice to teach people about vegetarianism and nonviolence. So you know that's an example of something that clearly is happening because of the support of, of members of our congregation and other people that just really value the work that we're doing.
1: No, and I can attest certainly to being in India uh, in a couple of different cities. I think it was Mumbai and Bangalore where I happened upon uh, Krishna temples, and the the, the feeding, the meals provided to people there was just absolutely astounding, and, and anyone would be impressed with that. And also, too, your, your temples are quite lovely. Uh, the 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 fiftieth um, anniversary magazine, which I uh, perused before uh, making contact with you, uh, r- reminded me how wonderful these temples are. And I know that some people criticize not not just ISKCON but religion in general for uh, putting so much resor- so many resources, into the building of a temple or a church or a synagogue. Or, or a mosque or whatever, because hey that that could uh, that money could feed the poor but there there is a, a real reason behind this, isn't there
2: well it makes me think of the parable in the Bible where some people came forward, disciples perhaps or i can' remember people of the public came forward and offered Jesus you know valuable oils and some of the kind of strictly religious and <laughs> not very spiritual people criticized him and said, Hey, use that money for the poor. I think I think both have to be there. Because we would understand, I, I certainly would, would would adhere to the idea that the world has Gandhi said there's enough in the world for everyone's need. There's not enough for everyone's greed. So one of the purposes of temples and mosques and synagogues and churches is to bring people together to help us refocus on spiritual values, values beyond more and more consumption and competition and trying to become to the top and trying to exploit the planet for unlimited desires that we seem to advertise on all of our TV stations these days, buy more, do more, consume more. And, you know, people are frustrated with that, but they don't have an alternative. They don't have an option. So. You know, we're pretty much taught you are what you drive, you are what you consume. Students are told just, you know, make a plan how you're going to capture as much of the market share as you can as a goal of life. It doesn't satisfy people. So, you know, spending millions of dollars building temples and churches, if it helps to change people's hearts so people become more selfless and more caring and, and, and giving up the sense of kind of greediness that that is created by the millions and billions of dollars we spend on shopping malls and in the advertising industry, that's a small amount of money to spend in the positive effect it's going to have of changing people's hearts. And when we change people's hearts, that's going to really help reduce the issues of poverty and corruption and sexual exploitation and war and everything else we face in the world. So I would argue it's a very small investment. I mean, certainly there's organizations that may be take advantage of that or maybe aren't pulling their weight as far as really helping to change people's hearts. But that's the purpose of religion as as far as I understand.
1: Looking back uh, uh, several years when I remember being introduced to uh, the, the Hare Krishna movement, I seem to recall that as soon as you became interested in taking this as, as your personal path, there were some things, some some behaviors that were requested of you, and uh, they they seemed fairly non-negotiable. For instance, uh, to give up all intoxicating drinks, uh, to refrain from gambling, uh, and uh, sexual restraint was, of course, very important. And I seem to remember that not only was it uh, restraining to the restraining sexual expression. Uh, uh Unless you were married, but it was also very uh, close to the Catholic understanding of even within the parameters of marriage that sexual expression should be for procreation only if someone comes to the comes to the temple for the first time uh, or or somehow engages with uh, hari Krishna de- de- devotees and they are interested can they still? Associate? Can they still partake if they're not ready to make those significant sacrifices? If yeah, you
2: absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we're we're a very open community, and we have, you know, I mentioned our Sunday feast programs. We do huge festivals around the world. In Washington D.C., we're part of the Independence Day parade. In Los, in New York, we have a huge parade down Fifth Avenue, and they end up at one of the big parks there, all day event, invite people come and appreciate the dance and sharing the music and learn how to chant and have some vegetarian food and like that. So very much our understanding is that, again, as I mentioned before, that, that, that our life is meant to help us make gradual steps. Our spiritual society should help us, and our life is meant to make gradual steps towards, towards God, towards Krishna. And the main thing we would just tell people is is to associate with spiritually minded people, and we would encourage them to try the process of mantra meditation or chanting. It doesn't matter what name of God you believe in. If you believe in Jesus, chant Jesus' name, or try the Hare Krishna mantra. And see if there's some effect there, if it doesn't help you become more peaceful and, and helps you really get a sense of some deeper meaning in life. And then for those that are gradually become a little more serious, probably one of the next things we encourage people is, is become a vegetarian. That's a, a principle very important for us because we feel that part of the reason there's so much violence in the world is because we cause so much violence and we do believe as jesus said you know an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and the Vedas, vedic scriptures of india talks about karma if i do good things i get good things back if i do bad things i get bad things back so i don't even know how many billions of animals are killed every year and and then people wonder well, why is there so much violence in society we would say well you know, you sow what you reap, and maybe we should try to be a little less violent. So we would say, become a vegetarian, at least you know, move that way. Stop eating red meat on Thursdays. <laughs> you know, make some progress in that way. And and, and the reason for these these principles that you mentioned is because we have what we call the four pillars of spiritual life or religious life, which is truthfulness, cleanliness, mercy, and austerity or self discipline. So we we believe that things like um, uh, no intoxication helps us lead a more disciplined life. You know, when people—it's not just we avoid intoxicating drinks; we avoid uh, smoking, snorting, whatever. We don't do any kind of intoxication because uh, we want to kind of keep our heads clear to focus on the more important things in life. And frankly, when I went to college, they did the whole thing I mentioned last week. I was a—I was a bartender for a while, and that was in the '70s, so drugs were plentiful. They don't satisfy and they and they really, I think, you know, these days we know they kill brain cells and they, they don't clear our minds, they fog our minds. And we think our life's too short and our time is too precious and we should keep a clear mind and focus on more important things in life. So cleanliness, truthfulness, mercy, mercy, no meat-eating,
1: like that. I noticed, too, that, uh, uh, of course, you have cow sanctuaries, and communities where the living really is simple. Uh, it, it, talk about that. Have you ever had any experience uh, living in in those conditions?
2: Not in an extended period of time, but I visit many of our eco communities around the world, and that was that was part of Prabhupada's vision, because he really was a little bit of a maybe prophet that that the current pace of a material consumption can't can't sustain itself. And, and now we see kind of the fruits of that. People are talking about buying your food local and all those different kind of things. So probably really was an advocate of that in the in the 1970s, saying we really need to get closer to the land and, and live a more simple life. So in many places around the world now, we have eco-communities. There's a very large one in Hungary that's getting a lot of support and attention from the whole European Union because it, it's kind of an example of how we can live closer to the land um, in india there's several communities in 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 north america there 's quite a few farm communities that are focusing on, on eco friendly ideals as as we also try to do some in the cities but particularly in in these rural environments and You mentioned the cow we believe that that, that cow shouldn 't be killed we don 't think any animal should be killed, but especially the cow because we see the cow um, is a very peaceful animal in traditional agrarian societies you know cow cow dung is a fantastic fertilizer beats any chemical that 's ever been made. And, um, you know, the cow is just a gentle creature who gives her milk freely. And by nature's design, calves can't even consume all of the milk that's produced from the cow. So we would say we believe this is kind of God's gift to humanity, that the cow, we take care of the cow, the cow takes care of us. We take care of the earth, the earth takes care of us. We try to serve God, God takes care of
1: us. We just have a couple of minutes left, Anuta Madasa. So uh, last week you mentioned a wonderful event. It certainly sounds wonderful that's coming up in October. Tell us about that.
2: Okay, great, uh, Fred. It is, it's a wonderful event. It's called Chant for Change. And anyone would like to get a little more detail, you can look on the website, Chant, and then the number for Change. It's going to be held in Washington, D.C. on the 8th of October, which is a Saturday begins at one o'clock and goes till ten PM and it's being held on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, the same place where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his famous I have a dream speech. And the idea is to have people come together from all different spiritual backgrounds or, or no spiritual background. Just an interest in coming together and to kind of express our shared humanity with chants and music and prayers Um, calling for peace, calling for a sense of calling out the divine to please and give us guidance in these times and really kind of express a sense of our shared humanity. So there's um, a lot of uh, people that perform, it's called Kirtan, devotional music, come out of India. There's uh, groups, uh, the Juggernauts with Gauravani, Jai Uttal, Sweet Honey in the Rock, who is, uh, I I believe, a Christian oriented group, very popular in Washington, D.C., there's a Jewish uh, a musician that calls himself the Kirtan Rabbi. He's quite well-known, and people from all kinds of different traditions, Native American traditions, Baha'i traditions, different Christian traditions, coming together to chant and, and ask for, let's have a change, maybe not so much in the political order, but a, a change in our hearts. So we invite everyone to come. I mean, they're expecting thousands of people. An event was held a few years ago inside a church. Um, during one of their earlier inaugurations, and it, it's gotten so bigger, and they had to turn so many people away, they said, hey, let's do it outdoors. So it's a wonderful event. It's a historic occasion. We invite everybody to come. Chant for Change, October 8th, uh, Saturday, 1 to 10. And ISKCON is one of the co-sponsoring organizations of the event.
1: Great. Anuta Madasa, thank you so much for your time, both today and last week as well. It's, it's been an enjoyable conversation.
2: Pleasure being with you, and I just invite anyone in your audience that's interested, stop by one of our temples anytime, enjoy a little bit of our vegetarian food, and read some of our spiritual literature, and we're glad to become friends. Thank you.
1: Anuta Madassa, Minister of Communications and Governing Body Chairman of ISCON, celebrating their 50th anniversary. I'm Fred Stella. This has been Common Threads. Please join us again next week on WGVU.
0: Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.